Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, do you know a Noah or maybe an Olivia? How about a Liam or an Emma? Well, they are the most popular baby names in the country yet again. They happen to be very popular in the U.S. as well. We find out why and what else is capturing parental imaginations these days. What a name from Yellowstone is very popular. We find out all about it. The Blue Jays bow out of the playoffs in, the, in another first round sweep. It happens again, this time falling to a Minnesota Twins team that had lost 18 straight playoff games going back to the early part of the century coming into the series. So are there big changes ahead for Toronto in the offseason? The highly anticipated trial of a former RCMP intelligence officer accused of breaking Canada's secret intelligence laws by trying to sell RCMP operational information to individuals linked to the criminal underworld has begun. Cameron Orders has pleaded not guilty to all six charges he faces. How has the prosecution laid out its case and what is the defense saying, at least so far? But first, Manitobans have elected a new government with the NDP winning a majority in Tuesday's provincial election. And it was a historic one with Wild Canoe becoming or set to become the first First Nations provincial premier in this country. It brings an end to seven years of progressive conservative rule in that province. And it brings a new progressive government into power. What was the difference in the campaign and what impact could it have on the federal political landscape? We find out. Wab Canoe, uh, here he is last night, actually. We'll play some of his victory speech last night. He is the new premier designate of Manitoba. Have a listen. Manitoba, Manitoba did something more progressive than any of those big cities ever did. We elected a strong team of new Democrats to fix health care and make your life more affordable. Yeah, he pretty much summed up his entire campaign in that uh, 20 second clip. I mean, he, he it was pretty funny. He was taking jabs at people who make jokes about winter peg or who call Manitoba flyover country. Uh, Manitobans yesterday uh, returned the NDP to power after a seven year absence, giving the party 34 seats, well above the 29 needed for a majority, to 22 for the incumbent conservatives, um, a, a lowly one for the liberals. They they'd had a very bad night as well. Canu uh, told supporters during his election victory speech that he was given a second chance in life. He becomes the first First Nations provincial premier in the country, and uh, he likes to think he made good on that second chance. And I found that reason in our family. I found that reason in our community. And I found that reason in our province and country. And so to young people out there who want to change your life for the better, you can do it. Yeah, it was a pretty inspiring speech, actually. He thanked Manitobans for the awesome opportunity. He also said he believes that voters rejected a, quote, divisive message from their opponents. And today, a former Manitoba cabinet minister, one who was defeated in the election, says the Progressive Conservative Party that she had served for years took a hard right pivot during the campaign. Uh, Rochelle Squire says she was surprised when that happened. Here, have a listen. I think that the um, the negative attacks... Uh, were uh, crossing a line and very, very distasteful to many Manitobans. The um, NDP campaign has been very sure-footed and really sympathetic to, I think, the key issues that Manitobans are grappling with. That's, you know, health care, uh, cost of living, and uh, they kept reinforcing that message. 
Right. There you have it. Uh, joining me now is David McLaughlin. He's president and CEO of the Institute on Governance. He's had many, many political jobs, including as a former chief of staff for Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. He's worked in Manitoba. He was the campaign manager for the PCs back in 2016, which was a victorious one uh, for Brian Pallister and the PCs back then. David, thank you so much. My pleasure. Nice to chat. Yeah, this was an interesting one. You know, I was speaking to someone yesterday who was watching this very closely. I shan't name names. And, and they were sort of scratching their head at the progressive conservative campaign in this election, feeling mm-hmm. like, you know, it was sort of the sort of a mirror opposite of what we saw in Alberta, where you had sort of a, you know, a pretty strong NDP campaign, but a stronger conservative campaign. And here mm-hmm. it was it was kind of the opposite. It uh, certainly was. And uh, I suspect uh, um, uh, conservatives won't be using Heather as a popular baby name <laughs> coming out after the next <laughs> while here. It's probably Wobbies is going to, is going to uh, rise up. Look, it's uh, uh, no campaign uh, it has a preordained conclusion. Every, you know, uh, every campaign has twists and turns and a good strategy, well executed uh, and effective communications on the hustings can lead to different kinds of results. Uh, we didn't see any of that in the uh, progressive conservative campaign. So I ran the 2016 campaign for them. I ran the 2019 campaign uh, for them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, um, uh, and, 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 you know, the difference I think here was uh, clearly the, the, the party uh, was suffering, I think, from an identity crisis. It wasn't certain what its message was. It was a bit of like a, uh, of classic sort of uh, conservative uh, uh, red meat on taxes, good economic sort of strategy there as well. But then it sort of shifted in a bit of populist right stuff. And then as well, uh, it, uh, it was trying to show a social face and a social conscience uh, on, on things and, and, and spending an awful lot of money. That gets confusing to vote. And I think voters, conservative voters, uh, what basically happened, I think, Ben, is that a lot of them stayed home. They weren't certain yeah. what they were voting for. And the and and to give uh, the NDP their due and Mr. Canoe, they ran a very, very good campaign. Well, very strategic, well executed. And so they earned the win. Yeah. I mean, you you uh, were campaigning against Wab Canoe in 2019. He yeah. seems to what I found really impressive this time. And because this is tough. I mean, people don't understand how hard it is to be so disciplined and on message all the time. But they managed yeah. to sort of stay on message and stay disciplined about health care and affordability from pretty much the day one to I mean, he was repeating it again today and he's already won. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, they they knew that that was the issue that was most resonating with Manitobans. And they grabbed that uh, early enough in campaign terms to own it. And so they owned the most important issue that was driving vote. The conservatives squandered. I really think that the the premier and the party and uh, uh, the government, they squandered the opportunity that Premier Pallister gave them, giving them two years to renew themselves fix health care coming out of the pandemic and, 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 and set a new agenda for the future. And they, they really didn't do any of that very well at all. And so they were on the back foot, quite frankly, going into the campaign. They, they seeded the field to the NDP for a full month where uh, Mr. Canoe and his team was out making announcements and inoculating themselves against some of those charges that they were ultimately to make as the campaign went on, you know, that Mr. Canoe wasn't ready, that they had a bad team. And then, of course, leading into the that uh, now infamous, uh, we won't search the landfill kind of ad. And uh, uh, that was really a failure of campaign strategy uh, when you're when that's what you're left with going, you know, in the last week of the campaign. 
Yeah, and it's certainly and the Liberals didn't do them any favors either. Needless no. to say, I mean the, the liberal the liberal campaign just fell apart completely, and that left left the whole that whole territory wide open for the NDP to to march um, on in. Yeah, no question, Ben. In fact, the you know the 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 Liberal vote collapsed down to eleven percent, which is either its worst or second worst in some thirty five three decades or more. And so, of course, those vote splits moved to the Conservatives. But the NDP was very transparent, very explicit, and uh, very public about they were going after Liberal votes. So it was a strategic move, and it, and it it actually led them to get two more seats. They flipped two Liberal seats. That padded their majority because if it was going to be just a flip between conservatives and NDP, it was going to be tighter if they didn't get any of those uh, liberal seats. So they were very strategic about it and had both a ground game, but also a core message that worked for people. And uh, and you didn't see that kind of strategy for, at all from the uh, from the progressive conservative campaign. They really were flailing almost from start to finish. And, you know, when you're closing argument when you think about it, Ben, you know, you've got your last chance to talk to voters and you're closing argument is we will not search a landfill as opposed to here's my positive vision for the future here's what you're going to get by voting conservative it's it really beggars the you know the mind you you have to ask serious questions about what were you thinking yeah i mean by the time that ad came out on the weekend i mean i think one could already see i think one already sensed the campaign was in trouble and the moment that ad came out sort of saying you know we're going to stand firm and not search the landfill for listeners who don't know that's believed the remains of two uh missing indigenous women are in that landfill the victims of an alleged serial killer there's been a lot of conflict about the price to search it but to sort of come out and use that as as some sort of wedge Mm -hmm. issue felt like felt like a a i mean it was indescribably bad yeah, and and voters are smart. They pick up on that and they say, you know, what is going on with these folks? And I, and and it's you know, it doesn't matter if you have a uh, a strong opinion one way or the other. It's not really going to move your vote. It's not what you're voting on. People vote, especially in provincial elections. They're voting on services. They're voting on how to make their life better, etc. So wedge issues, these marginal things, they have a very limited ability to move votes and and to and to get attention. And it was you know, like as I say, when you're scraping the bottom of the barrel like that, it does really mean that your campaign has, uh, you know, has, has failed. And so that's where they, uh, they ended up. And we now see the results of, uh, of a, a very solid, and very convincing NDP victory and a progressive conservative party now without a leader and trying to figure out what it stands for and where it goes. David, David, what do you think the view is from Ottawa on this? Because I was walk, I walked away with this thinking a few things. A, uh, Justin Trudeau will be happy to have another progressive premier out there, especially one in the West. So now you have David Eby in, in BC and you have Wab Canoe in Manitoba. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, it sort of, to me, it sort of proved that Pierre Polyev's message discipline on affordability, uh, this, this hammered home that approach, that anything else he was thinking of wandering into on the culture war landscape should probably be avoided and affordability is where he should keep going. Well, from an issue perspective, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, affordability and health care. I mean, uh, you know, health care is obviously provincial, although the federal government gives a lot of money. But I think uh, they've now done that. They've given uh, increased Canada health care answers. So they've turned it back over to the provinces. But affordability and that angst that people have about, you know, where is that next paycheck coming from and how to pay for things? That's very much in the wheelhouse of uh, Mr. Polyev and the, uh, and the federal Conservative Party. But I think right now, uh, given Mr. Trudeau's situation, he's just happy to have have a potential progressive friend on the left. 
right? He's, you know, just have another premier who will not automatically be taking shots at him or giving him a hard time. And so uh, he's like that. And, um, uh, and so like uh, it's uh, these days, a short-term win feels uh, uh, or short-term relief feels like a win. And so he's going to take advantage of that as best he, he can. But the issues are still, I think, very much in the uh, federal conservatives, uh, you know, favor. Right. Uh, yeah, 40, 48 hours of good news will be welcome uh, for the federal liberals these days. What did you think it said, though, about, about this idea of, of culture war wedge issues like pronouns and, you know, quote unquote, parental rights and, and, and this whole idea around, I mean, the landfill was very specific to yep. uh, Manitoba, but, but nonetheless, they were wandering into some very unpleasant territory. And, but it, it sort of, it seemed to me it was a bit of a red flag about certain culture war issues and just how much tolerance most Canadians, most voters have for these issues right now because they're just not as important as your grocery bill. Well, I think you're right. And, uh, you know, you have to be able to afford the luxury of worrying about something else. And when you're focused and worrying about uh, affordability, then you're, uh, then, uh, you know, you're not going to have the time for this uh, indulgence on these other issues. Uh, look, uh, parents and schools have always been an issue. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and having parental engagement is, uh, is clearly a thing. Um, and it needs to be. But I think what we should watch for is really what happens perhaps in New Brunswick. So while Manitoba had a bit of that, for sure, there were some other change elements going on. There was health care as a dominant issue. In New Brunswick, we see Premier Higgs gearing up for an election very much focused on this issue of, uh, of parental rights, etc. And I think that will be more of a test case than, uh, uh, than anything else uh, going forward. Right. Manitoba, for the PCs in Manitoba, clearly these were issues. They were, as you put it, they were grasping for something at the end of a campaign that had not gone well. I mean, Wab Canoe, here he is. He's the first First Nations premier, provincial premier, I should say, uh, in, in this country. It is, you know, Manitoba has, and I don't think he was wrong, Manitoba did something that nobody else has ever done before. And in some senses, uh, that sort of history is something that Manitoba can look at. And it's been a complicated history, obviously, yeah. and be proud of tonight. Yeah, I, uh, look, I don't think uh, anything should detract from the historic nature, both symbolically, but also in political terms, of electing the first uh, Indigenous uh, premier in the country, the first First Nations uh, person as, as premier uh, in the country, and, and, and clearly in Manitoba, which is, suffers greatly from these issues, where, where uh, reconciliation is a very arduous uh, uh, project in that province, where there's issues of addiction and, and crime and other stuff. And, and so, uh, you know, Mr. Canoe is going to have his hands full, any premier would in, in Manitoba, and that if this gives him an edge, an advantage, a, a way to communicate and, 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 and rally uh, uh, people around certain solutions, that would be great. And that gives, you know, hopefully he'll use, you know, the so-called bully pulpit. He'll use that platform uh, to do that. But at the end of the day, Mr. Canoe is uh, four years from now, he'll be judged uh, on how well his government performed and that classic accountability. And that's a good thing, too, because then it won't be ideally a, a conversation about race or or identity and other things. It'll be about good government and good governance. And that's, you know, kind of what matters. But having said that, Ben, you know, you're, it is important that you to do underline what you just said. It was and remains a historic and an important moment for the country. Uh, let's see where it takes us. Well, David, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. My pleasure. 
This is our Journalism Corner time. Of course, we bring someone in who's been doing really interesting work over the course of the week. And one of the busiest people around has been my next guest, who's not only been doing his regular show on CJOB in Winnipeg, but also took part in Global News' um, election coverage last night from Manitoba. And it was a big night. It was really a big night. We talked in the last half hour with David McLaughlin about just the success and failures of the, that happened over the campaign trail that culminated last night in this majority victory for the NDP uh, and their leader, Wab Canoe, who becomes the first First Nations provincial premier in the country. Uh, he held a media availability this morning as premier designate. With the election over, he says the real work now begins. The NDP have some pretty hefty pledges they've made, especially to fix health care in the province. And he says the goal to recruit more health care staff and build more emergency wards begins right away. I've been asked to serve as premier. I don't know how much more weight you could uh, put on somebody. I mean, this is the most difficult thing that I've ever done in my life. And the real work hasn't even begun yet. Right, indeed. It was, a, it was a big night for the NDP. I mean, they ran a very disciplined campaign, the progressive conservatives, as David McLaughlin was pointing out, because he ran the previous two winning pa- campaigns for then-Premier Brian Pallister, uh, really went off the rails, especially near the end. Uh, and we talked about how happy the Prime Minister might be to have another progressive face at the Premier's table, and now he has one, David Eby out in BC, now Wab Canoe, soon to be in Manitoba. Here's what the Prime Minister had to say today. It is a good thing to have another progressive premier across the country that we're going to be able to work with on uh, issues of affordability, issues of housing, uh, issues of reconciliation, obviously, but uh, a lot of good work that we're going to be able to do together. I look forward to speaking with him to congratulate him and start that work uh, a little later today. There is the Prime Minister. Well, let's get an inside view of what it was like to cover this campaign and to cover the election last night. Uh, doing so for both CJOB and Global News is our colleague Richard Cloutier. His show is he's the co-host of the news on 680 CJOB in Winnipeg. But I was watching him sitting beside someone I know really well last night, Lauren McNabb, who I used to work with at Global National. Uh, and just, uh, yeah, to covering what was what ended up being a very interesting night, I think. Not least of all because the, count, the vote count was a little slower than expected. Uh, welcome to the show, Richard. Hey, great to talk to you. Yeah, twists and turns as far as the new technology that was employed by Elections Manitoba and very similar to the new technologies that we've seen at other provincial levels, um, a little slow at times and then really slow at times. But you get an opportunity to to chat with Loren. David Aiken was there from our National Ottawa Bureau, and uh, so it was. It was a good time last night, kind of tracking the votes and telling the stories. Yeah, and you had to put on a tie. I mean, I haven't worn a tie ever since I came to radio. I was used to be obviously worked in TV, and you had to wear a tie. And I've gotten rid of <laughs> tie and makeup. Right, well, I, just, I, I have and, to say, I don't and, miss any of that. And and Lisa, uh, you know, our 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 anchor, uh, Lisa Dutton, picked out my tie, and I had oh, nice. the Burberry one. And she says, well, you have to wear the Burberry one. And I said, well, it's been a while since I've worn a tie because we all forgot to wear ties. And and really, I think post-COVID, even in television, on non-election nights, you can get away without wearing a tie. But you have to dress to the nines on election night. You do. You do. It's primordial. Um, It was an interesting (laughs) night. I mean, what happened? I mean, I think it was sort of... Like watching a sporting, I hate, I don't want to use too many sporting yeah. analogies here, but why, like watching a game where one team is clearly ahead and going to be ahead the whole game, maybe a bit like basketball, it felt like the NDP were not going to lose that election. But it's, all of a sudden it started to slow down. You thought, okay, well, wait a second. No one's been able to call this yet because 
Well, we just don't know. I mean, we haven't hit that magic number. And, but sure enough, uh, what was seen in the polls, at least leading up to Election Day, uh, ended up being the case that this was a good night for the NDP and a strong uh, and the results of a pretty strong campaign, I thought. Yeah, I was fortunate that uh, pretty connected to both campaigns and had some you know, inside sense going into the evening that anywhere between uh, 31 and 34 seats for the New Democrats, it's 57 seat legislature and uh, that magic number of majority is 29. And so you got an indication pretty early that the NDP were taking away uh, seats in vote rich Winnipeg, seat rich Winnipeg. But, um, you know, David McLaughlin was part of that uh, team that built a real super majority for Brian Pallister. Mm -hmm. And he was able to do that largely through pocketbook issues um, and, and I would argue that Brian Pallister uh, came to power in a vote against the previous premier, Greg Selinger, because mm -hmm. uh, Selinger tried to raise the, the PST. And he comes in, does some things, builds a supermajority of seats in and around Winnipeg, thanks to redistribute, redistribution, is able to, to build beyond the suburbs of Winnipeg. And then last night, um, that blue wall that McLaughlin built with Pallister uh, really started to crack about midway through the evening and just tumbled down with cabinet minister after cabinet minister falling. And one of those former cabinet ministers now, family services minister, woman by the name of Rochelle Squires, who has yeah. a great story in herself. She comes out today and says there was too much conservative, not enough progressive, and that this party has to figure out who it wants to be in the months and years to come because that wasn't the party she signed up for that ended up in the campaign going hard right midway through yeah i think we actually have that if we want to listen to it. we played it uh for david mclaughlin i suppose we could play it again not 104 not 104 that's how we, that's how we do things in this business <laughs> i think number. that the um the negative attacks uh, were uh, crossing a line and very, very distasteful to many Manitobans. Rochelle Squires, as uh, as Richard was mentioning, and of course, the, what she's referring to predominantly is is uh, an ad that was taken out not long before Election Day uh, in yeah. the Winnipeg Free Press, a full page ad uh, featuring the, the the then premier, the premier de at the time, Heather Stephenson, uh, essentially saying, you know, we stood we stood our ground. We're not going to search that landfill for those the, the remains of those two missing women, the alleged victims of a serial killer, two Indigenous women. And it's that seemed, I mean, David McLaughlin had an, obviously had an interesting take on it. He just said that campaign was off the rails. And they didn't yeah. know. They were just searching around for something. And someone thought this might be a way of, of driving a wedge issue. But just, I, I have rarely seen a more distasteful uh, election ad in this country, at least, than that one. Yeah, you know, it was explained away as saying that you know, it was trying to shore up the core support in some rural ridings. But uh, as you try to shore up against the Keystone Party, the hard right party in some areas, um, but that alienates uh, voters in so many parts of Manitoba. And so when you have someone like Squires coming out the day after saying that, you know, I can't believe that they did that. And in the remaining days of the campaign, she and a few others were the voice of the progressive conservatives. And now, um, and at, at one point was uh, someone who may end up leading the party at some point. I think that that's not going to happen. 
considering that she was defeated yesterday, like so many other cabinet ministers. But um, that would be the low point of the campaign because uh, Heather Stephenson essentially took a week off and did a lot of private functions and wasn't around to kind of explain the attack ads. And uh, it really shored up support. And the, the NDP ran a, a brilliant campaign um, in the sense that they came out and talked healthcare and continued to talk healthcare. Oh, and by the way, they continued to talk healthcare. And so while I really look at elections as far as defeating an incumbent government in many ways in this country, uh, when you looked over at the alternative in Wap Canoe, he presented himself um, like a Gary Dewar. Gary Dewar was the very popular NDP premier of Manitoba for a decade starting in 1999. This election uh, had a lot of feeling similar to 1999. It was a health care election back then. And midway through the campaign, Wap Canoe stood beside Gary Dewar and Dewar endorsed uh, Canoe. And I remember talking to Canoe afterwards saying, that guy is still a rock star. He can still dominate a room. And I remember saying to Mr. Canoe last night, um, that can be your legacy. You know, you can be a one-term premier or you can build um, a legacy in Manitoba by governing to all Manitobans. And, and he certainly has been talking that way. And while there is pride in who he is and who he represents and an appreciation of history, this is someone that also wants to stay premier for a while and has many challenges ahead. The biggest one I would say is that the NDP, like so many uh, political parties uh, at the provincial level, they are urban based and uh, their main opponents are rurally based. And it's up to Canoe to build and grow this party outside of Manitoba because there are many people listening to this in rural Manitoba right now who feel that they don't matter whoever is in power uh, in Manitoba at the, at the legislature, or at times in Ottawa as well. We've been beat down so many times and, you know, never wanted to lose that hope. And, and I just felt, I just feel like everything's just been renewed and that fire has been relit. That's Melissa Robinson. Her cousin, 39-year-old Morgan Harris, is one of two women whose remains are believed to be at a landfill north of Winnipeg. And, of course, with the election of a new NDP government in Manitoba uh, last night, there is renewed hope that perhaps a search of that landfill will take place. And then today, uh, the federal government announced uh, $740,000 uh, to study, again, the feasibility of searching the landfill. There's already been a feasibility study uh, that found that a search is possible, but toxic materials there could pose a risk uh, to workers. Richard Cloutier is co-host of the news on 680 CJOB in Winnipeg and was covering the election campaign, uh, even the debates, uh, moderated one of the debates and was there on the desk last night. I mean, this is one of those issues, Richard, that sort of lurked behind this campaign because it remains quite a big, to me, at least outside of Manitoba, it remains quite a quite a big issue. Uh, do you think this will see, will see progress now that we have a new government in place about the search of this landfill? Because there's certainly a lot of optimism that, that is about, that's what's about to happen. I do. I think we will see the search um, and it's in the millions of dollars. Um, I dismiss the whole idea of, you know, the hazards involved because you do have hazmat suits and the things that you can do to make sure that you're safe on this. But um, it's not just Wap Canoe that feels this way, the, the premier designate here in Manitoba, but one of his um, key potential cabinet ministers, as he looks at making a cabinet in the weeks ahead, 
There's a woman by the name of Bernadette Smith, and she represents one of the poor ridings in Winnipeg, a place called Point Douglas. And um, many tragic stories still occur in Point Douglas. But Bernadette Smith has a sister, uh, Claudette Osborne, who has been missing from Winnipeg since 2008. And from time to time, she will retell the story and how important it is that at some point she finds out about her sister and the other sisters and the two sisters that are missing and could be at that dump north of the city of Winnipeg. And so while this is about searching uh, a landfill, the symbolism here is sometimes not explained properly, but in a place like Winnipeg and in a province like Manitoba, and the history that was made last night and today with Wab Canoe, this is suddenly saying that lives matter. And that, uh, and, and this is kind of a, a, you know, an inside journalism segment that you do. And I'm so grateful that you do that and you've invited me because when I started at 680 CJOB back in 1992, these issues were not dealt with. And for years, they were not dealt with by the media and by most Manitobans. And it's only in the last five to 10 years, there's been a real recognition that this stuff matters. And today, and as a result of our conversation tonight, I'm still going to get mail like we did with COVID, like we do when we cover controversial issues, because this is one of the big issues, I think, in this country, but certainly in this province, in this city, is dealing with racism. And yeah. so while Wab Canoe is, you know, going to be the premier for all, he's having to and will have to walk a fine line here. Um, and it's something that, uh, you know, I think, Ben, we in the media were a part of it because there was a certain complacency for years and years and years. And now we understand our role in this as well. And there are individuals now who have been elected that are not standing by idly anymore. And they're saying, we want the same justice as everybody else. Yeah, we had Grand Chief Kathy Merrick on last week talking about this as well. Mm -hmm. Just what, an, what a very, very uh, painful issue this is. We just had a texter text in to say, if this was your child or sister, would you not want closure? I mean, the answer, I think, is a definitive yes, right? Um, and so I guess this will be something, we'll see how this progresses as well. Richard, before we go, I had a couple of texts that came in, and these are questions that you're much better placed to answer than I am. Uh, Craig in Winnipeg says, I was at the Fort Gary Hotel in Winnipeg last night celebrating the NDP win. The Conservatives ran a very abrasive campaign, so much so that I had a conservative friend tell me that he and his wife did not vote because of the negative ads. And I was surprised. I mean, I knew that they were badly received. But David McLaughlin said the same thing. His sense was a lot of, you know, conservative voters or, you know, traditionally conservative voters simply said, you know what, we're not, we're going to stay home on this one. Yeah, 55% turnout, same as last time, last election here. A lot of Tories that I know, um, you know, went hunting for the last 10 days. They didn't right. vote. Yeah. 
And and another uh, listener, uh, Jason from Edmonton, he was somewhat surprised at the unpopularity of Heather Stephenson from sort of his, his – he says, I don't understand why Stephenson from the very beginning was unpopular as soon as she took over from Pallister. Uh, if the recent results and critiques of the PC campaign are an indication, then she wasted no time in stepping down as leader. I'm guessing it was a long time coming. He, he posited that her heart just wasn't in it. And I'm wondering too because I was always wondering about – I mean you, you mentioned the, the – PCs had two years to build off Pallister's departure. Yeah. He wasn't that popular when he left. Uh, but Heather Stephenson had two years to reset this. And she would have made history last night as well as the first woman elected as premier. She of, stumbled, of from, the, she stumbled yeah. from the beginning. Um, she made it very difficult for anybody else to vie for the leadership. Uh, it was a coronation. And her best speech was her speech of resignation last night. Because that's where she connected, uh, really had a hard time connecting with the average Manitoban and uh, made a lot of errors early on, started to get really a lot better come February, March of this year, uh, did some things on the healthcare that were long overdue, but still not comfortable as, as a leader and one of the things that we do every night, every day, is connect with audiences. And in retail politics, if you can't connect with people on one way or another, um, you know, your time is going to come a whole lot sooner, a whole lot sooner. And that's what happened to Heather Stephenson. I've known her for 20 years. She's a wonderful person. Um, you can have a great conversation with her, put her in front of a podium and make her premier. It's a different role that she just wasn't comfortable in, and it's unfortunate because she could have made history as well, but uh, compared to Wab Canoe, Canoe's a communicator. He understands how retail politics works and, and campaigns, and McLaughlin told you this, we know this all the time, campaigns are essentially one-month advertising campaigns, and you either make it or you break it. It, absolutely. And Wab Canoe is about to find out what it's like to be premier as well. Richard, thank you so much. You are so very welcome, my friend. That was the sound of a regimental funeral held today near Vancouver, led by an RCMP pipe band. Obviously, thousands of uniformed police, fire, military, and other officers marched in that procession for Constable Rick O'Brien. Uh, the 51-year-old was killed in the line of duty in Coquitlam two weeks ago while trying to serve a warrant. Uh, that happened on September 22nd. There was a lot of really heartfelt stuff that took place at that service at uh, the Langley um, in Langley today. Uh, Constable's friend and co-worker, Corporal Pete Westra, says Rick O'Brien was kind and compassionate, a dedicated officer and dad. Rick's loss has devastated many people. It was too early and it was senseless. It will be felt by his family, friends, the entire Ridge Meadows Detachment, the RCMP, and the countless lives that he touched. There was a lot said today about O'Brien as well. He was a decorated officer who recently celebrated seven years of service, having become a Mountie in 2016. He was 51, so that was later in life. He leaves behind a wife and six kids. And as was described today, he often described his blended family uh, as the Brady Bunch. And his friend John Brandreth told thousands gathered today that O'Brien loved policing 
It was his dream job. But even greater than the love he had for the RCMP, the love that Rick had for his kids, his family, and of course his soulmate, and the love of his life, Nicole, it was truly remarkable. Yeah, you can you can tell just the emotion uh, there. His family was there, obviously. His his coffin was draped in a Canadian flag. The Stetson was placed. He had been given an award uh, for valor. That was there too. Um, you know, these are very very somber and sad events, and yet you you find out about the lives lived and the lives that these officers have touched. And in that way, it's it's it can be very it can be very touching as well. Uh, there was a note written by Constable Rick O'Brien's wife, Nicole, whose name you just heard mentioned there, and it was read out to the funeral by uh, their friend, Stephanie Porter, who said the couple was supposed to be on vacation together today. Thank you for being a positive role model in our kids' lives and for those within our communities. Thank you for showing strength, vulnerability, and demonstrating to our kids that no matter how old you are, it is never too late to go after your dreams. A letter uh, read there. That was a letter from Constable Rick O'Brien's wife, Nicole, read by a friend of theirs, Stephanie Porter, at that funeral today. Well, joining me now is Rick Parent. He's a 30-year veteran of the Delta Police Department uh, and now retired. He was an associate professor at Simon Fraser University. Rick, thank you so much for your time tonight. Good evening. Uh, good story. I'm glad you're covering it. It's, uh, it's good, good to talk about this. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm trying to think. I was thinking back today that the first uh, funeral I went to for an officer, I think, was Christopher Garrett, Coburg police officer, back in 2004. And it's it's hard to describe what mm-hmm. they're like. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I was at Larry Young's uh, funeral here in, Van- in Vancouver. Which was that last time a Vancouver police officer was murdered on the job. And uh, they had literally shut down the streets in Vancouver, and uh, it was a huge... Uh, event. I mean, luckily, this doesn't happen very often. Uh, uh, typically, uh, Canada loses two police officers per year uh, that are murdered. But the last year has been a bad, a bad year. We've had 11 officers murdered on the job, uh, basically in about 12 months. Yeah, including another RCMP officer in BC, Shailen Yang, of course, that we remember back from from not that long ago. Uh, talking about the, the way the funerals take place themselves, I gather, I mean, you know this. Yep. How important is it for officers to be able to come together and do this? Yeah, we, we support each other. I think that's the key. Uh, we, we realize that we are the thin blue line uh, protecting society, but also protecting ourselves because it's, it's one of the few occupations, it's, it's the only occupation where when you go to work in the morning, you might die, you might be murdered by someone. There's, there's no other job in society that has that kind of uh, expectation that you might take a life or actually lose your life um, and not accidentally. This is somebody who deliberately wants to kill you, and, and that's an unusual thing. So, yeah, back to your point, um, not just Canada, but also the United States. I've been to several uh, funerals in Seattle and vice versa. The Seattle police have come up to uh, the Vancouver area, but there's a lot of solidarity and support uh, both both emotionally and psychologically for, for doing the job and for risking your life literally every day that you go to work. It was interesting to hear... Um I mean, obviously the saddest, and but also, if you don't know the officer who's been killed, the, the part part of it is is hearing about who they were, right. and it's it was. I mean, by every by every stra- every every definition, it seems like Constable O'Brien was a great cop. 
Yeah, and it, it, it's it's so sad when you hear this, and, and you hear this again with the officer in Burnaby who was out there trying to help this homeless person, and, and she lost her life. And then you look at the officer in Abbotsford uh, a few years ago, same thing. He was a great guy and just trying, uh, he was a school liaison person and uh, a great member of the community. So what you see with these funerals is that uh, police officers have personalities, and most of these officers are actually trying to help someone and, and to protect, save, or help, and they get murdered for doing that. And I think that's the real tragedy that comes across to the public uh, during these funerals and these big events. Yeah, I mean, and also within the RCMP family uh, right. on the Lower Mainland as well. I mean, I know that, that Constable Bryan was a seven-year veteran at 51, so something, right. and I think it was mentioned in that letter today about... Um, pursuing your dreams later in life, even if it's to become a police officer. And I think, yeah. I think we're this, you know, I'm, I'm 52. Uh, right. So this one, you know, when you look at that, you think, wow, mm -hmm. what a step to take to become yeah. a police officer later in life. Yeah. And, and he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to risk his life. He had, you know, had a career and successful career and, uh, you know, given back to society with, with his other job. And then he took this extra step. So even, you know, more amazing and uh, what a great sacrifice that he did. Um, and again, trying to protect the community, that's what it was all about, trying to help others. So, Yeah, I, you mentioned it already, uh, and, I, and I think we'll talk about this. I mean, this is one of those, you mentioned 11 officers now, right. and that on average it's usually two. And you don't want, I mean, the circumstances have been different uh, in, each, in each case. How, what right. kind of impact would this have? I mean, there were other officers injured in the same, same incident. Uh, there's obviously a suspect in custody. Right. Um, but what kind of impact does it have on his immediate colleagues and just on, the, on, on his regiment? It, you know, I mean, it must be so, or his, his, his colleagues, it must be so tough to get up and go to work when you've had, suffered that kind of loss. Yeah, it, it takes years for um, you to come to terms with it. It's not something that happens in, in weeks or months. It takes years uh, when, when an officer dies, and especially when it's, it's so tragic, when, it, when someone has uh, taken his life. Um, it, it makes it tough going to work. People, the police are more cautious. Uh, they're more, um, maybe more cynical uh, because uh, they're out there risking their lives and, and they hope the public supports them all the time, not just when there's a, a funeral, but afterwards, because I, I think what gets lost in this is that there's an equation and um, between when police officers use deadly force, and they're always quick to criticize the police with that, but the reason why they carry guns and the reason why they use force is because they're dealing with these deadly incidents on a regular basis, and they need to protect their lives as well as the public. And then sometimes, like the, the, this incident, uh, the police are not successful. They're not able to protect themselves, and they become a victim of uh, the incident. So I, I think there's that also that awareness of uh, the dynamics between these two issues. Um, and sometimes that gets lost by the public. We, we have a lot of people criticizing the police, um, and they, they forget why the police do what they do, which is basically public safety and trying to make uh, the community safe. And, and we're all in this together. So it's not just a policing issue. It's, it's a community issue. Yeah, uh, you bring up a good point, Rick. I, th I think this was put specifically to politicians uh, not long ago about sort of politicians showing up when there's been a tragedy and saying all kinds of nice things, but right. that, that officers don't necessarily feel supported by the same. No. I mean, I, I obviously you do a very, you know, police officers do a very tricky and very dangerous job. Right. And, and, you know, there needs to be accountability, but there yes. also needs, to, I, I think, 
to be understanding as well. You know, especially you look at a case mm-hmm. such as this one, um, you know, and how difficult that is. Is that is, is there a sense of anger too when these things happen that, that sometimes there is a duplicity out there in public life about policing and, and, and the dangers that it brings and the sort of scrutiny that policing can be under? Yeah, I, I think so. That cynicism and, and a bit of um, disappointment sometimes with, like you say, politicians who are, are there to rally when, when it's a, a great public event. But when you need leadership and you need someone to stand behind you when something is less than clear or obvious at the time, uh, you need someone to stand there and to be fair and objective. And that doesn't happen, especially in, in recent times. We find, you know, social media, politicians, activists are quick to condemn and automatically judge uh, police officers, particularly anytime they do something that is slightly controversial. And um, that that is, I think, eroded some of the, the goodwill, the good trust that, that was there in the past. And I think that's a problem. I think we need to get back to that type of um, support that we had for law enforcement in the past. We, we look at this now. I mean, this is this is the this is the eleventh time we've had an eleventh time in the past little while that we've had these one of these funerals, and and it just feels like. I guess there really are no. This is a reminder of how dangerous the work is. That there are no routine calls, as I was mentioning earlier. Right. But but what do you think the reaction within within the the policing uh, you know, sort of fraternity is, or, or you know, or or sorority fraternity is right now about what can be done to try to to try to ease the risk a bit here because it feels like it's been happening a lot. Yeah, no, excellent point. And prevention is, is the key. Uh, it's too late once it happens. There's several issues that we've been looking at. I've been doing some research with uh, another retired police officer, Jim Van Allen. He uh, was with the OPP in the Criminal Profiling Unit, and he's done an excellent job in pulling all of these cases together. And uh, with Jim, we're, we've been looking at uh, roughly 80 cases over the past 40 years since 1980. And, and one of the things that comes up is our police population rate um, we have 40 million people now, and that's been a big topic about, you know, all the people coming into Canada and our population suddenly increasing, but, but our police officers aren't. And what we see is the police population ratio dropping, that there's less and less police. We also have less police um, out on the field, less people want to be involved in policing. It's hard to find recruits, so that's another issue. It's hard to keep police officers. They don't stay as long. Uh, in the job. But but some of the other things that we've come across, uh, largely due to Jim's work, uh, he noted that uh, police also have to kind of pick up their game a little bit, be a little more cautious dealing with stolen vehicles, um, getting backup uh, and emergency response teams sometimes if they can, and to also make sure that they reinforce the procedures and tactics that they're taught. They don't always use them when they go to calls, so that's another issue. But probably one of the, the more bigger controversial ones is more consequences for violent behavior. And, and we see that not just with the police, but also with the public. We've had several cases in the last year or two where individuals have gone out and either stabbed someone for unprovoked reasons, uh, hurt other people, and there's not a lot of consequences. Some of them are repeat offenders, and the public is wondering what's going on here. Why aren't these people in jail um, why are these people allowed to engage in bad behavior without consequences? And I think we have to stop and look at that more than what we have been doing.
Yeah, we've seen some moves towards bail reform on that front as well. I was reading something about a police force on 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 the west coast of the of America where they are employing a lot more mental health professionals uh, yeah. going in in these situations. Not you know that I you know that police can't do all this by themselves right. obviously on the streets we're seeing this is probably not an example this tragedy uh in coquitlam is probably not an example of this we don't know uh fully yet but there have been incidents where it feels like you know a mental health professional may be better equipped than than the police would be for these sorts of things it feels like the police are having to wear a lot of hats these days and that puts yeah. them in the line of fire when maybe they shouldn't be yeah, that, that's an excellent point, is we see that you know, police are the only service that's out there 24 hours a day, and it's basically free because it's provided by the taxpayers with houses. But what we need is, is more, again, services that are more specific, whether it's mental health resources, drug addiction, um, more people that can deal with specific problems all the time or at least on a regular basis and not just the police. And, and unfortunately, that's what's happened. Society has um, become more complex over the last few years, and we haven't filled those voids. We've made a lot of changes, but we haven't uh, addressed the needs. And, you know, one of the big ones that we're seeing is the um, the drugs that we've allowed mm-hmm. drugs to uh, be out there, but we haven't. We've realized now that we don't want people consuming drugs in parks and in front of stores, etc. So we're we're reacting to some of the things that we've done in the past. Right, and then police are called to take care of that as well, which yes. puts the, puts them again in a situation where they're in danger. Rick, thank you so much for your time tonight. All right, excellent. Uh, thanks for covering this topic. <laughs> head to Ottawa now because there's been a lot of attention paid to a trial that kicked off yesterday. This is the trial of former RCMP uh, staffs. Oh, sorry. Actually, today they had a, um, a witness on the stand, a former RCMP staff sergeant, told uh, the court that he was shocked to find out someone had sent sensitive intelligence documents to a criminal suspect. Guy Belly was testifying at the trial of former RCMP intelligence director Cameron Ortis, who has pleaded not guilty to violating Canada's secrets law. Ortis, again, was the former RCMP intelligence official accused of having broken that law, uh, allegedly for trying to sell RCMP operational information to individuals linked to the criminal underworld, including targets of police investigations. That all came up during the Crown's opening remarks on Tuesday. Now, again, he had a a very high-ranking position uh, in the RCMP on the intelligence side. He's entered a not guilty plea on all charges against him. He faces six charges total, including four counts of violating the Security of Information Act. Um, Basically, what it boils down to, the 51-year-old is accused of three counts of sharing special operational information, quote, intentionally and without authority, and one count of attempting to share special operational information. He also faces two criminal code charges, a breach of trust and unauthorized use of a computer. But one of the big reasons why this is being so closely watched is not just because of how profile the acu- high profile the accused is, how much access he had within our intelligence sharing world, including with the five, our five eyes partners, but also it would be the first time that a court is testing charges under the Security of Information Act, which was brought in back in 2001. Now, uh, Leah West practices national security law and is an associate professor at Carleton's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And she joins me now. Leah, thank you for your time on this tonight. Thanks for having me. Just for context, in case people have forgotten a little bit about this case, I think everyone remembers when the arrest happened, but it goes back a while now. Uh, How far up the so-called ladder was uh, Cameron Ortis at the time? Uh, Because he was pretty high up there. Yes, he was the director general of the RCMP's um, 
National Intelligence Coordination Center. Um, so he was um, very high level, one of the most senior civilians within the RCMP when he was arrested. So he would have had access to just about everything, I suspect. That's correct, especially because he did serve in that intelligence coordination function. I think it's fair to say that, um, and we know from what the um, Brenda Lucky, the former commissioner, has said, was that he did have access not only to the RCMP's um, intelligence and Canadian national security um, intelligence, but also intelligence that the RCMP would have received from our Five Eyes partners, so our, our closest intelligence allies. Right. I, I guess going back to 2019, his arrest sent sent a real shockwave through our intelligence community, if not others as well, just because of the access that he had. Yes, that's right. Um, you know, there was a concern about the breadth and scope of the potential impact of any in- intelligence that he would have shared. Um, and uh, there was a lot of efforts made to reassure and to to reshore up our uh, partnerships with especially within the Five Eyes community, who with whom we have such a strong intelligence sharing relationship. So, what is he accused of having done? For listeners who may not remember how this unfolded, uh, what exactly is he accused of having of having done? So, we're actually learning for the first time um, the scope of what he's accused of. For the previous four years, because there's been so many publication bans over. Um, over the trial and over the proceedings, we didn't really know the specifics except for what um, intrepid journalists had been reporting. But now we know that that reporting um, was accurate in the sense that um, Cameron Ortis um, sought out um, an individual who was the head of a company that allegedly, um, and I believe he was actually found guilty of this, so not so allegedly, uh, was sharing kind of decrypted devices that would be used by criminal organizations. And the RCMP and other um, uh, allied uh, criminal law enforcement investigative services were looking into the company because it was having a serious impact on their own investigations. Um, and Ortis reached out to the president of that company and essentially said, I have information. This is what we're hearing today. I have information that you'll find very interesting. Um, and he wanted to provide that information in exchange for, at least in that instance, $20,000. Um, the crown also stipulated that he reached out to associates of another, um, individual known with kind of international money laundering. Um, trying to sell them information as well. So the thing that I'm finding most fascinating about these allegations is that it it wasn't that he was corrupted or that he was pressured by a foreign state. Uh, He himself went out allegedly and sought uh, criminals with whom he could enter into a, a business relationship, sharing secrets in exchange for money. I guess so often in these cases, if one even thinks of the fictional ones, it's, there's usually an ideological bent to this. But if, at least according to the accusations and what the Crown has laid out so far, that was just, as you point out, that was just not the case here. This was about selling uh, intelligence to criminal organizations that were under investigation so they could avoid detection, allegedly. Yes, that's right. And uh, from what I've heard, I haven't been in the, the courtroom, so, but I've been following the, the reporting on the trial uh, closely. 
Um, it's my understanding that there hasn't been a motive put forward and, and it's a motive isn't necessary um, to prove the element, any of the elements of the offense, just that he intended to do it without authorization um, that, but there is, there's been no motive offered in this case. Um, the weird thing is we might get a sense of what the motive is from defense because mm-hmm. the defense so far have said that they are going to present that Mr. Ortis had authority to do what he was doing. Um, so that to me tells me that they're going to explain the reasoning behind what he was doing and how it fell within his authority. Right, because he's pleaded, for listeners to know, he's pleaded not guilty. And I gather that the defense and the, and the prosecution agree on many of the facts of the case here, uh, which tells you, as you pointed out, that he plans to say that somehow this was sanctioned. That's correct. There is... Um, from what I've I've seen reported today, a, a long list of agreed facts. Um, that's, you know, kind of a, a tool that's used in trials when, you know, there's certain facts that don't need to be established with evidence. So, you know, you don't need to prove beyond a reasonable doubt certain elements of the offense. The two parties will just agree that they're, they're facts um, that, that then can be applied to the offense. Um, we're seeing that here in the sense that um, what I just said to you about him approaching criminal um, cr- organized crime members with an offer of selling secrets in exchange for money, um, no one has disputed that fact or they won't be disputing that fact. The only dispute is around his legal authority to do that. Um, and how the defense plans to prove that I think is going to be very, very interesting, but both sides have agreed that the information that, um, was sought to be exchanged or was exchanged was information that the government was taking, um, steps to protect. So it was, you know, classified information, which is one of the elements of the offense and that, um, Mr. Ortis is someone who was permanently bound to secrecy. So not, you know, it, that it was a violation of SOIA to uh, share that information with organized criminals, foreign entities, anyone really um, without authorization. So that without authorization piece seems to be where the defense is going to place their focus. Right. At least so far, there seems to be no proof that there was any sort of authorization right now. I gather he was on leave at the time that a lot of these emails were being exchanged. Um, I, He was on French training. So right. uh, it wasn't that he wasn't working. He was just not fulfilling his position as director general at that time. He was off on French training through some of this. I don't know if, to the full extent. Um, some of the charges, the original charges did span uh, long periods of time. So like three years or more. Um, so it would have covered the time he was away and then the time he was back in his job. Right. It's it's hard to conceive of a situation, but I guess because a lot of this has been, as you pointed out earlier, a lot of this has been, you know, there's a lot of secrecy here, a lot of, a lot of facts that we just don't know yet. But it seems hard to fathom of a situation whereby he would have been authorized to share this information, uh, I, 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 unless there was something else going on that we just haven't heard. I guess we'll find out when the defense starts its case. Yeah, I, I you know, from from what we've heard from the Crown, Um, They said very specifically, he was not authorized to engage in any kind of undercover activity. Um, You know, he um, 
was not a law enforcement officer. He was a civilian working within the RCMP. And I will just say that uh, this is something that I haven't seen discussed, but engaging in unlawful activity, even if you're doing it on behalf of law enforcement, has to comply with a series of uh, you know checks and balances that right. are set out in the criminal code. Um, they require sign off and oversight. You know, cops just can't go around breaking the law in order to pursue the law. There's you know there are parameters to that. So I'd be interested to see how uh, the defense seems wants to get around that. Um, reality. Leah West practices national security law and associate professor at Carleton's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. We're talking about the trial of Cameron Ortis, the former RCMP intelligence official uh, accused of breaking Canada's secret intelligence laws that began in Ottawa yesterday. It's a it's a trial that has many facets of it that are interesting, Leah, I guess in your shoes as well, that this is also sort of groundbreaking in other ways, case and details of the case, facts of the case aside. Uh, there are things here that are also being happening for the first time. And one of them is a trial. Yes. Um, This is the fifth time um, since the act came about, which was just after 2001, the Security of Information Act. We've seen five people been uh, charged under the act. Um, One was recently this year, another former RCMP officer. Um, We've had one conviction in the past, which was Jeffrey Delisle, a naval officer who who ultimately pled guilty to sharing intelligence with uh, Russia. And we've had two individuals who have been charged, uh, but their their charges have been uh, stayed um, for procedural uh, reasons in the past. And that was with associated with uh, selling secrets to China. Um, so this is the the first time we're actually seeing this kind of offense be tried in a court and tried before a jury, um, which presents a lot of very interesting and difficult challenges for the prosecutor's defense and for the judge. Right. I suppose not least of which is that unlike some other trials that the public will be used to following along, even journalists in this case, uh, a sort of reporting and accessing the information that's being shared within the trial itself will be different than we're used to. Yes. So, you know, throughout the last four years, as the proceedings have advanced, um, they've almost all been subject to publication bans. Um you know, he was charged originally, I think, with eight offenses. He's only now pursuing six. They haven't been able to really report about that. Um, the, you know, the bail hearings, what would normally be heavily reported on, they were not. They were subject to publication ban. And what's happening with the testimony, as I understand it, um, is that a number of RCMP witnesses and Mr. Ortis, should he testify, will be uh, testifying in a closed court, meaning Mm -hmm. only the jury and the court staff and the accused and his uh, lawyer and the prosecutors, obviously, will be present in the court um, for their testimony. And what is going to happen as a way of ensuring that the public's interest, uh, the right to an open courtroom is maintained, is that the transcripts of that testimony after they've been reviewed to ensure that there's no accidentally disclosed um, secret information will then be shared with reporters who can then report on the testimony. Right. Well, Leah West, thank you so much. Thank you. And now ready to go. And here it comes. There's a line drive. Base hit into left center field. Lewis scores. They're going to hold up Kepler as the ball gets thrown in. So everybody's going to advance one. Twins on the board. One nothing. 
Yeah, one nothing. That was the that was game two of a best of three series between the Blue Jays and the Twins. Obviously, the Blue Jays had lost the opening game, so they had to win today. Turned out that was the only need that only run the Twins needed. It gave them a one nothing lead in the fourth, and that was it. That's all they needed. Here's the final out. Dalton Varsho uh, striking out. Swing and a miss. Finally, 21 years in the making. And the Twins advance with a victory in two straight over Toronto. And they will meet the Houston Astros in the ALDS. Right. Well, there you have it. So very quickly, and that happens in this playoff format with the wild card, very quickly the Toronto Blue Jays went from those scenes of celebration when they qualified for the playoffs just a few days ago to that's it. The season's over. They're done. Uh, And that's despite not only wanting to play the Twins instead of the Tampa Bay Rays, who they managed to avoid, who actually also lost, by the way, Uh, but the Twins had come into this series with a record 18-game playoff losing streak. So they were certainly a team that was not on the upward swing coming into the series. And although there were signs of promise all season and with that wild card berth, this will be another year of what-ifs for the Jays, considered to be one of the strongest, definitely one of the stronger lineups and rotations on paper, but again, left to watch much of October baseball as it will now proceed from the sidelines. That means the Jays' postseason losing streak, their own postseason losing streak, forget the 18 that Minnesota came in with, but it's up to seven now. And that includes sweeps in the best of three first round series in 2020, 2022, and again this year. So, what went wrong this time around for Canada's? Well, only baseball team, but really Canada's baseball team. Adam Lascaris is a sports uh, staff sports writer at the Daily Hive in Toronto. Adam, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, the wild card format is better than I suppose what I remembered so distinctly when I was young is that if you were in a division with a good team, you just didn't make the playoffs. But it is over in a in the blink of an eye, and it was was today for the Jays. Yeah, no, it's just like you said, right? It's. Uh... It's a two-game. Uh, it's a two-game series. Could have been a three-game series, but um, that's kind of the nature of, of modern baseball and, and how it's been for a while. It's you know maybe the the cruelest of, of the big four sports. Things can uh, happen so quickly, and and you know today for the Jays, it was just kind of uh, a, another example of what we've seen from this team all season. It, it seemed like they got your hopes up a little bit. You know they had a moment here and there, and then you know they somebody grounds into a double play and you know they get a couple runners on base and they just can't cast them in and and uh like you said it's a pretty quick uh pretty quick end to the the playoff run and uh, a lot of people left disappointing a lot of people you know left uh calling for answers a lot of people left you know wondering kind of what's what's next for this team but but at the same time i think a lot of people are just kind of disappointed at uh that's the end of the you know the exciting playoff baseball that they'll get a chance to uh, cheer for the blue jays for this for this season yeah, and, and of course there is the, that 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 awful, and this I'm sure this will be replayed of them sort of celebrating the other night, which is you know fair game if you make the playoffs, might as well celebrate. But sort of talking about how this team was built for the playoffs and this is it, and then you know they scored one run in two games, and you're sort of thinking, well, I mean clearly, clearly you weren't, and that's unfortunate. I mean they were playing on the road in, in all fairness, but still, uh, it felt like it, it it felt like everything went everything if if they were meant to if this were meant to be redemption for a kind of up and down season, even though they made the playoffs, uh, this wasn't it. Yeah, no, definitely not. Um, right. Like, like, just like you said, it, 
there was there were so many little things that just kind of went wrong along the season or along the way this season with the Blue Jays. And you could look at some positives, right? Obviously, you could look at how strong their, their pitching rotation was all season, um, even with, you know, a cyan candidate in, in Alec Manoa just not being himself for, for whatever reason. Um, but but just throughout the year, it was just kind of this, oh, you know, we're going to prove it. We're going to be able to figure this out. You know, we're going to be able to, to do this. And, you know, they won 89 games. Like, that's nothing to, to slow job. But then you look at the rest of the division, you know, you look at Baltimore, who was able to win 101. And then Tampa, like you said, they they finished quite ahead of them. And, and they're also out. So um, it, it's a weird year where, where, you know, on paper, they, they had, a, you know, a decently successful team. They had a decently successful season. But um just by the nature of, of baseball, uh, they were a team that kind of had this uh, lingering issue of not being able to do it when it counts. And, and like you said, it's been uh, seven years since they've won a playoff game, and, and that's gonna this one's gonna sting for a while. Yeah, uh, some interesting uh, calls today. The manager, John Schneider. I mean, often the manager is the one who play, pays the price when these things uh, go wrong. But uh, but a pitching change in the fourth inning that has left a lot of people <laughs> scratching their heads, uh, you know, 47 pitches in uh, Jose Barrios, a big signing for the Jays, $131 million that he got. He used to pitch for the twins, by the way, ironically um, goes out there, looks to be having a pretty good game. And then all of a sudden he's gone and people are like, well, wait a second. I mean, back in the day, Nolan Ryan would have, you know, would have thrown 47 pitches in his, in his warmups. I mean, this is, it's just an odd baseball's changed. Yeah, I think that was the decision that, um, you know, it was it was a weird one because, uh, like you mentioned earlier, the Jays didn't score a run. So it wouldn't have mattered, you know, even if he uh, – he would have basically had to throw a shutout himself if he kept on going. So I think that, that was a, a moment where it was so heightened where they decided to, uh, you know, based on the numbers, and they thought that, uh, you know, Brios is a guy who, who traditionally wasn't the best against left-handed hitters, and they had the Twins had a heavy left-handed lineup, and it was a lot of – you know, mind games and juggling and saying, oh, maybe we can get this matchup and that matchup. But, um, you know, when the when the Twins score, you know, pretty much right away, as soon as you, you pull this guy out of the game, uh, it definitely optically at least doesn't look very good. And it's kind of a weird thing where, you know, you want to find something to focus on. And you want to find something to, you know, really cling to. And you, you say like, oh, this is the big decision that kind of swung the game. Um, at the end of the day, the Blue Jays didn't score any runs. And, and I don't think that, you know, the, the Jays, didn't necessarily not win the World Series um, because because of you know one decision to to pull a pitcher in, in a game where they where they couldn't score a single run. But uh, yeah, it's definitely the thing that kind of was the sticking point for this specific game. And and you know maybe down the line we won't think about it that much. But uh, for today, I think it's definitely the, the kind of one main takeaway from today's game. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Montreal, obviously, and I used to. I remember covering Vlad Guerrero Sr. at this point, Vlad Guerrero Sr., Vlad Guerrero the first. So I love Vlad Guerrero Jr. But man, and so so for listeners to know, the Jays are down at this point already uh, by a run. They have men on second and third with two out. Uh, I gather it's Bo Bichette who's up at, at the plate. He's having a he's having a, he's pretty hot. And Vlad Jr. gets picked off. He gets picked off second base. It's, it was a, it was a good move, but he gets picked off, and you're just thinking, "Oh wow! Like you can't make that mistake. You can't be you can't be sleeping out there on on the bases." Yeah, I, I think that's um, another thing that kind of rubbed the rubbed a lot of fans the wrong way about about this whole season was kind of coming into spring training camp. There was a lot of narratives about. Um, Oh, we're going to be a more professional team this year, and you know they they made a few trades where they they traded away Teoscar Hernandez and they traded Lourdes Gurriel Jr. and these were guys that fans generally, uh, you know, were, were 
fan favorites, right? And and sure they had their mistakes in the outfield here and there, but but people generally like them. And and all the quotes this year were, oh yeah, we we made mistakes last year, but we're going to clean that up. And then you come to the playoffs, and uh, you know you're you're facing the franchise type player in Vlad, who admittedly didn't have the best season, but it's just it's it's a real stinger when when you get picked off like that, and it's it's just. It's hard not to just feel a little embarrassed for for everybody involved. Obviously, Vlad, you know, he wishes he, you know, he wasn't ticked off. Obviously, right? It's it's a mistake on his part. Um, but it's just kind of a thing where where you look at this whole season and you know they had this whole narrative of things are going to be different. And then I think at the end of the day, you know, like just no matter how any of the last three J seasons has ended, it's it's been oh we had a pretty good team, uh, but but what did we get? Like we didn't get a single postseason win. So. I think, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, you know, maybe Vlad doesn't get picked off. Maybe something else changes. But, um, you know, when you, when you get shut out in, in one game and you, you score one run in the other, um, it's, just, it's just hard to, to come to terms with it at some point. And I think a lot of people are feeling frustrated about sort of the, the way the whole season went. Yeah, and I, I sense that too because obviously I'm in BC. But you know, I mean, the great thing about the Jays, and of course, I grew up in Montreal, so I'm a lifelong Expos fan, which is a hard thing because I can't cheer for the Washington Nationals. But uh, and of course, we had a rivalry with the Jays when I was growing up. But you see so many Jays hats out here as well, and right across the country. They, I mean, they are our team now, so you sort of feel like the you feel the frustration that fans have, and I think part of the frustration this year with the Jays was this kind of endless spin with this endless spin like sometimes you need an organization that can kind of say you know yeah yeah we you know we messed up like we messed up but it's just this constant spin of you know we're one of the best teams in the league we're destined to win and you just thought wow you don't play nearly as well as you talk and that's a bad thing yeah i think that's kind of one thing that's kind of always been on this front office is that you know they came in right after, uh, you know, 2015 and, and, you know, Alex Anthopoulos kind of found his way out of the organization. And there was, you know, talks about how that all went down and, and over the, over the past, you know, eight, eight or so years, this, this organization has tried to, you know, be more professional and, and try to do everything a certain way. And, you know, obviously they put all these huge renovations into the ballpark and, you know, they realized that they couldn't just, you know, for years, the thing in, in Toronto, like you alluded to earlier, was you look and you say, well, Boston and, uh, New Yorker in our division. We'll do our best, but if we don't win, if we come third place, if we come fourth place, at least you guys had some fun watching baseball this summer, right? And yeah. and you know they've shown that there's an organization that's willing to spend and they're they're willing to try and uh, you know compete. And and I don't think that's really been an issue for a while. But then you look at the you know Tampa Bay and Baltimore are at the top of the division, and and you say, oh well, these organizations are doing something better than we are, and they're not in the major media markets like Tampa Bay. Sure, they weren't able to uh, win their series, but. Um, you know, they're a team that's gone to the World Series several times. And, and you know, their fan base is, still has trouble coming out to the games. But, they're, uh, you know, there was a big talk about how they had less than 20,000 people at their at their playoff games, partially to do the fact that it was in the middle of the day. But, but that's still an organization that's, you know, been able to uh, compete year after year. So I think the frustration with, with the Jays is, you know, you, you keep hearing like, oh, you should trust us, you should do that. And, and you know, I, I think we're at the, this point in time where we're – you know, it was, it was Parsons this year, all regular season. People were saying, okay, we're going to wait to see you do it in the playoffs. And, 
and now, uh, you know, there's not going to be too much patience through in the 2024 season uh, if, if things are, aren't going too well. Adam Lascaris is with us this half hour. He's a sports staff writer at the Daily Hive in Toronto. We're talking about the Blue Jays season coming to an abrupt end today in Minnesota, falling uh, to the Twins 2-0, uh, losing their best of three series, wildcard series, by the same tally, two games to none, and it's done. Um, Adam, I mean, it feels like there's going. this is going to be changes and part of the reason i say that again because i'm way out here on the west coast so we don't really get to follow it the same way that you do but i sensed a certain frustration amongst people who are much more um easygoing about the jays generally this year this year people were, were pretty getting pretty ornery with the franchise yeah i think um it, it just kind of goes back to what i was saying before the break about how you know, there, you've always been asked that, as a sports fan to say, oh, you know, we're the, we're the people that are being paid a lot of money to run this franchise. And, and you know, you should, you should believe in us and, you know, believe in your team and you, you, know, you cheer on your team and all that. And um, it, it's just a, been a stressful thing for a lot of fans, I think, because um, partially might even be just due to the fact that, uh, you know, people like the team is owned by a, a corporation that people aren't always a fan of, right, in, in Rogers. And, and people say, oh, you know, this. I think there's, you know, this misconception that the team isn't willing to spend money because they obviously have been. They've, they've spent hundreds of millions of dollars in renovating a new a new ballpark, or, or sorry, renovating a ballpark to make it feel new. And, and they've spent a lot on free agents over the years. But I think the main thing is you, you're kind of like, okay, well, we'll show us something that we can remember. Because people, you know, obviously remember in 2015, you know, the Jose Bautista Bats, like in 2016, you know, they were able to have some success there. They were able to win the, you know, the wildcard game there, win the ALDS and, you know, get back to the ALCS. And mm-hmm. it's just been a while since, you know, you've had those really memorable playoff moments, right? This team hasn't won a playoff game in, in quite some time. And, and, you know, you've been, you've been pitched this core of, you know, Guerrero and Bichette and, um, you know, people, people have these good moments with this, with these players throughout the regular season. And then when it comes to playoff time, it's either, Oh, the Jays just missed the playoffs or, you know, the Jays have had, 2020, even though it was kind of a weird year, they were in the playoffs that year. It's easy to forget sometimes, but, you know, 2022, 2023, and they just haven't been able to win a, a single game. And and uh, just when you go through 162 and you say, okay, what's going to happen at the end of it? Of course, there's a lot of, you know, anxiety associated with that. And then you look at what happened over the past uh, two games and, and, you know, you're looking back at that, at that management group and you're looking back at, you know, the team that's kind of saying, oh, yeah, like, wait and see. And then you're, you're kind of like, well, we're waiting and, and we're seeing and it's not a very, uh, not a it's very not a pleasant, pleasant experience for a lot of Blue Jays Yeah. Fans. So who, do you think anyone has to, anyone goes this summer? Does does the man, does Schneider go? Does, I, I don't imagine either Mark Shapiro or Ross Atkins will go, but it look, feels like the manager usually takes the, takes the fall for these ones. Yeah, it's a strange thing front on his front because I think, you know, one of his, uh, one of his downfalls is, is sometimes his, in, in Schneider's case, his, his honesty in, in press conferences sometimes comes off a little. Um, I don't know. People don't always like, like to believe it. Sometimes they'll say things like, oh, that's just the way baseball is, which is true in some sense. But people are, you know, not necessarily happy to hear, oh, like, you know, I, I spent my whole summer and uh, spring and fall watching this team. And then you say, oh, you know, that's just how it is. And, you know, you don't seem to have any clear answer. And, and uh, so Schneider Schneider's a strange one because he's been with the Blue Jays organization for so long. I think he started with the team back in around 2008, worked his way up through the minor league system. And, and it's just been around and they kind of, you know, promoted him through the ranks through the years. To, and, um, you know, it was generally well-liked when he, when he first came on. And, and I think it's just, um, it would be tough, I think, from a, from a personal level for him to go. I, I'm not you know, hundred percent sure how the, how the players feel about him. I, I think if uh, the players are invested in him, it, 
it's weird because sometimes people say things like, oh, you can't bring that guy back. You can't bring that guy back. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's opening day and, and you, you know, you brought a manager yeah. back. It, it, it happens all the time in baseball and you just kind of have to deal with it. So um, I think Schneider is the easy answer. I think that the tougher question is, okay, if, if they do get rid of Schneider, like what's the actual next move here, right? Are you bringing in a veteran manager that's had a lot of experience? Do you wait to see how the rest of this pro season goes and see if somebody else gets fired? Do you, you know, promote somebody else internally? Like, Kind of what's the actual solution is, is a bigger right. question for me because yeah. it's easy to say fire somebody, but but the bigger question is how do you fix it? Well, Adam, thanks so much for your time tonight. I guess I mean it's hockey season almost, so there you go. On, on onward and upward. Yeah, six days away until uh, NHL season starts and about 23 <laughs> until the NBA. So I don't know. Watch <laughs> baseball go. if you want to, but I won't be watching the Blue Jays. Adam Lascara, sports staff writer with the Daily Hive in Toronto. Thanks. <laughs> We're talking names. I talked about the names that I grew up with. Um, there were a few Benjamins around. Not many. Not many. When I went to high school and grade, well, grade school, I went in French, so all those names were different. There are other popular names that I went uh, that I went to high school with. Lots of Nicolas or and Francoise and Marie Josées and Sophie's. Sophie's still a popular one, by the way. Um, but Canada's most popular baby names for 2022 have been re- revealed. There's some new choices, and there have been some ones that have been around for quite a few years now that have been near the top. Uh, They were released September 27th by StatsCan. By the way, this isn't just some invented thing. Statistics Canada reveals the top 10 names for boys and girls in the country, and the most popular name for each gender is the same as it was in 2021. So there hasn't been any much of a change there. Um, So it's, it's Noah for boys, Olivia for girls, Liam uh, is number two, and Emma is number two on the other side. The irony here is that if you go to the U.S., just flip that around. Liam and Emma are number one and one, I believe, one and one. And Noah and Olivia are two and two. I'll just have to make sure of that, though, before I before I attest to that. Yeah, Liam and Olivia are one and one in uh, in the states. Noah and Emma are two and two. And here it's uh, it's it's the other way around. Noah is number one in Canada, and um, Olivia also number one. So Olivia is the most popular name, girl's name in both places. It's odd how these names. Uh, sort of come and go, how they become so popular. Uh, and of course, Olivia has been, for many, many years, has been a favorite. Uh, it means it's of English, Greek, Latin, and Nord- Nordic origin, meaning Oliver, olive tree. Noah, up to number one this year, displacing Oliver as the most popular boy's name, I think. Uh, Noah is of Hebrew origin, meaning rest or comfort. Uh, Liam, strong-willed warrior. There you go. So lots of history behind these names. But I was really curious as to, okay, well, how quickly do they change? Why do we see so many of the same names in the top 10 um, in both here and the U.S.? Why are they so similar? Where do they come from? Because a lot of these names aren't names that you think of as being sort of somehow attached to some kind of popular popular TV show or so on. So in Canada for boys, Noah, Liam, William, Leo, Theodore, Oliver, Benjamin. That's the top seven. For girls, Olivia, Emma, Charlotte, Amelia, Sophie, Chloe, Mia. That's the top seven. And those aren't exactly, I mean, they're, they're nice names, but they're not exactly trendy names. I mean, not particularly trendy. They're popular. Um, so we thought we'd ask someone who knows. Sophie Keem is editor-in-chief of Nameberry, and she's based in Chicago, and she joins us now. Sophie, thank you so much. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. Baby names, I think, are an infinitely fascinating trend because they say so much and yet so little about what's going on in your society at the same time. But once again, in Canada this year, the same, I mean, if this were a music top 10, you'd be very familiar with these songs, I think. 
Yes. Yeah, so the top 10 is, I mean, they're, they're the same names that are, that were in the top 10 last year. Although, I mean, there's, there's been some movement. So right. Lily and Oliver both, both jumped up about four spots in the mm-hmm. top 10. I was interested to see the fact that in Canada and the U S the same two names are at the top and in the U S it's enduring. So you have Noah and Liam on the boy's side and Olivia and Emma on the girl's side. And those have been popular in Canada for a while now. And they've been popular in America for even longer. Right. No, they have. I mean, you don't see the names at the top move very often, right? You know, it takes a large number of babies for a name to get to the top of the charts. And so movement tends to be a lot slower there where you go lower down, you have uh, a lot more, you know, you've got the fast risers or the or the quick fallers. Um, But yeah, I mean, names like Olivia and Emma, Noah and Liam, these are really modern classics today classic classics as well you know with the exception of of liam which feels more nicknamey right it, it is a um the irish short form of william mm-hmm. but it you know as a given name has risen in popularity in north america specifically yeah, you don't see it in England. It's one of the names that is absent from the English boys list uh, for many reasons one could guess at. Uh, yeah, you're right. I was looking at the top 10 and names like William, Leo, Theodore, Oliver, Benjamin, Thomas. Benjamin's a good one. Uh, oh. Those are all those are, those are all there. Uh, and then on the on the girls side, maybe a little more up to date. But Ava, Lily, uh, Chloe, Sophie. I mean, these are another good name. Uh, Amelia, <laughs> Charlotte. I mean, these are not sort of out there names that are populating the top 10. Right. So, you know, a name has to be well loved in order for it to reach the top 10. So you're going to see more mainstream choices. Uh, You know, I think what's really interesting, and we see this a lot in in girl versus boy names, is that boy names tend to feel a little bit more traditional at the top of the charts, whereas girl names can be, you know, more, um, you know, fashionable or susceptible to trends. And uh, that that appears to be a little bit of what's happening here, right? We have some long-standing classics like William and Thomas, um, you know, on the on the boys' side, and and for the girls, you know, names that feel a little more possibly trendy, like Mila and Chloe. Um, so we th- that's just, you know an international phenomenon, really. I was surprised to see, given the growing diversity in the U.S., obviously, the growing diversity in Britain, the growing diversity in Canada, that a lot of the names are so kind of English. Uh, I mean, I I suppose the majority of the population still speaks English in all these countries. But at the same time, you'd think you'd see other names starting starting to push up into the top, top 10 or so. And it's just not the case, at least not yet. Not yet, though, you know, if you look at the fastest rising girl and boy names that were lower down on the charts, you do start to see more of that diversity, right? So you have Freya for girls, which that's a North Scottish name. Um, You have Ali for boys. That's an Arabic name. And you are seeing, you know, a a lot of these names are covertly cross-cultural, I would say, right? So if you are a parent um, and maybe your household speaks multiple languages or your child 
is coming from a you know mixed cultural backgrounds, you might want to use a name like Leo or Mia or Ava because those names are really easy to pronounce in a lot of different languages and they are easily translated across cultures. So I think that's something that can get lost in the data, but um, you, you know we we are witnessing that in you know on the Canadian name charts. How much does popular culture have an impact on names? Because I look at the names that are in the top tens on both sides in Canada, but also in the U.S., Mm -hmm. and you don't feel like they're tied to anyone in particular. You don't feel like there's a specific, it's not like as of, I mean, I suppose you look at a name like William and maybe, you know, maybe it's Royal, who knows, but there are, it doesn't feel particularly trendy, uh, to be honest. Yeah. So, you know, the names at the top of the charts tend not to be the ones with, you know, really overt uh, pop culture influences that they can they can get there. You know, I would say um, Mila, we saw really rise in popularity after Mila Kunis introduced mm-hmm. it, but it still took a long time for that name to reach the top 10. And now that it's become such a popular baby name, it that pop culture reference is diluted at this point. So that's something that happens. But, you know, pop culture does have a strong effect on on baby names at times what it it has to you know follow this special formula which is the right pop culture influence and the right name so if there 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 could be a great influence in pop culture and you know no one is going to use the name because it just doesn't feel like a fashionable baby name these days but you see a name you know at least in the US and um i imagine it's on the rise in canada but the the data doesn't we, we don't have enough data to support this you know a name like dutton from yes. yellowstone right top, that... top top rising boys name in america dutton i noticed yes yes yeah and so you know what Yellowstone is the is the right pop culture influence in Dutton, which has really fashionable sounds and you know mimics names like Sutton, which are really big right now. That'll do it. So it you know it, it takes the combination of those two things for a name with a pop culture reference to rise. But uh, when it strikes the right balance, a name can really soar. Yeah, I was I was looking at the American top five fastest rising names, and it was interesting because there are four that are kind of newish, and mm-hmm. there are two on one on each side that are very much not new. So on boys' side, you have Dutton, Casey, K A Y C E, Chosen, mm-hmm. Kaza, and then Ethan, which is sort of a really old fashioned name. And on the on the girls' side, you have Renly, uh, yep. Naraya, Arlet. Uh, Georgina, which is a very old-fashioned name, and Amiri. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so it's interesting just to see the mix of those names that are sort of all of a sudden surging up uh, in popularity. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of those ones do have pop culture references. Um, you know, here in the U.S., since we have um, a strong Hispanic and, and Latin American cultures, a lot of these names come from telenovelas. Right. So um, Arlette and Georgina, those those were both... Um, from you know telenovela. okay right telenovela uh, ones yes of course yeah yeah so um and uh amiri is a fashion brand kaza we can trace back to a you know a hit song um so yeah it's it's really cool to see what what pop culture can do to revive either a you know a very old-fashioned name one that's very traditional or something totally new that no one had ever heard of before 
Where are we headed? Are there any other trends that we're seeing? I mean, sometimes it's interesting to see names come back. Uh, one thinks that, you know, names, kind of the names that I grew up with, lots of Andrews, lots of Jennifers, those names have kind of, they're still around because, of course, lots of Davids. My dad's a David. He, you know, there's a famous cartoon, a famous comedy skit here called The Daves I Know, right? For men of a certain generation, <laughs> there were just a million of them. I guess some of those names sort of come and the traditional names come and go. Mm-hmm. They do. Yeah. And they they follow, you know, a pattern that is more stable than usual. You know, in names, we have what's called the 100 year rule, which states that basically, you know, it takes 100 years for a name to come back into fashion. So take a name like Jennifer, right? That name's probably going to follow the 100 year rule. It was most popular in the 1970s. We're going to see it start to come up again and probably the 2060s, 2070s, right? After, you know, we don't know very many Jennifers anymore in the in the general population. And so um, that's what happens with, you know, most names that are decently popular. But with certain names, certainly uh, Andrew and a lot of the names that you see on the top 10 side for boys like William and Benjamin and Thomas, right? They may go through periods where they're more or less popular, but they never fall out of use because they are true, true classics. Right. And often names that are passed down through a family, too. I mean, I think that applies all the time that people would older names are often named after someone within the structure who is dear and so on. That means an older name. Not always, not always, but it can happen. Um, I was interested looking. I was interested looking at the. Is there a trend center here? Does America set the trend? Does Britain set the trend? I've, I've always been curious because you look at the at British names, and you know Willow has been a big one there of late. Uh, Grace has been a big one back up. Daisy's made a return uh, yeah. in Britain as well. And then on the boys' side, there's been some interesting ones. I mean, obviously Muhammad is always a super popular one, and and in Britain it's in the top ten. But Arthur has come back uh, in oh. a big way. Archie. Archie, I think we can maybe maybe nod to the royal family on that one. But Archie's made a big comeback. So is Freddie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so what's really interesting is that it used to be that names would come into fashion in Britain first and then come to North America. So Canada and the U.S. were kind of behind the times uh, with the with the British names. But now we're starting to see more influence on both sides. So Britain tends to be, you know, they tend to popularize the old-fashioned names first or some nicknamey names so a good example is millie millie is very big in the uk and then you know parents in north america are like oh we love this name now that started um over in the uk but more american or north american rather style names are coming into fashion in the uk as well so we're seeing more names like weston and dakota and so on yeah Yeah. so so we're seeing influence on both sides and you know we have the the internet and uh you know cultural exchange in in that way to thank for all of I, I suppose back when I was young, when I was born, there was there was a limited space where you could go for name inspiration, and now you have the world at your the world at your hands when it comes to to name inspiration. Of course, I had to look up our names. Uh, Sophie, yeah. the, the combination of Sophie, Sophia, and both its spellings has been remarkably popular for a very long time. I found out you must have a lot. You're going to have you had a lot of Sophies around you, and you're going to have many more in the future. I think. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, even, even I feel like when I was, when I was growing up, it was, it was pretty well used, but um, now it's, it's even more popular. And I think it's really interesting that it's Sophie rather than Sophia as the ranking name in the Canadian top. Yeah. That could be a French thing, right? Because Sophie is more of a French name. Yeah. Sophie's the French. And so you do see a lot of French influence um, and more generally European influence in the um, on the Canadian charts. So Sophie and Chloe, right? These names are not quite as popular in the U.S. Um, that, uh, but they they are French and they work right. really well in French. And then you know even some of the um, the rising names uh, or you know the names that broke into the top 100 this year, like Leon and Jules for boys, right? Those have kind of a French or European flavor to that. Sophie, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. 